Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at Sinai. So we've come through, right, a bunch of stuff, a bunch of plagues. Uh, we come out of Egypt. We're in the place of wandering, the place of nothingness, the place of openness, the place of vulnerability. We are in the Midbar. We are in the wilderness. And so we uh, come uh, through the story of them fetching and complaining he meets his father-in-law, Moshe does, Yitro, and he tells him all about the things that have happened to them. And then Moshe is instructed to get the people ready that now the whole point of being freed from Egypt is upon the nation. The entire point of the exodus is this moment. Otherwise, it could have been, okay, y'all are free. Bye-bye. Have fun. Here's a plan for a 401k. Like, wait, there's, they're, they're not free just to be free. Right, They are freed in order to enter into a covenantal relationship with the divine. So this is the entire point of the entire narrative of the Exodus. So you would think the book ends here. <laughs> but it doesn't. All right, so let's, uh, let's continue. They've been brought to the foot of the mountain. They have been prepared uh, for this encounter. Go on, Robert. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, for Adonai had come down upon it in fire. The smoke rose like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled violently. The blare of the horn grew louder and louder. As Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. Adonai came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and Adonai called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Adonai said to Moses, Go down. Go down. Warn the people not to break through to Adonai today, lest many of them perish. The priests also who come near Adonai must stay pure, lest Adonai break out against them. But Moses said to Adonai, People cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and sanctify it. So Adonai said to him, go down and come back <laughs> together with Aaron. But let not the priests or the people break through to come up to Adonai, lest God break out against them. And Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Okay. So as we said last week, when Torah wants to convey a sense of the, um, a sense of the ineffable, that which can't really be put into words, the Torah jumbles the words a bit jumbles the the images is he up is he down go down but god just said that so god says go down again did he go down did he come back up like, so it gets very confusing and again we tend to as western readers go oh, that's so sloppy right like <laughs> fix that right um because we are very wedded to our very linear way we need everything to be lined up in a row right and we like it very linear that is not the way the ancient world thought and it's not the way the ancient world expressed itself. So um, we have to appreciate literature in its own setting. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons it stays kind of confusing and jumbled. A, because this is an experience that is really not able to be expressed in words, like most religious experiences, like most profound. Ex- if you think about our most profound experiences, it is very hard to put into words, right? What, what, we, what happens, what we feel, what goes on. It's very hard. Because words are not a great vehicle. Words are not a very good vehicle for expressing the ineffable. So, um, so this is one of the ways Torah handles that is to, is to make it kind of complicated and, and hard to understand because it's hard to understand moments of revelation. So we get this idea that the, that there's a concentration, God's kavod, God's presence comes down upon the mountain. So once that happens, the mountain essentially becomes nuclear, right? So the instruction not to let the people come, right, too close to the mountain or to touch the mountain or to see too much is because it's dangerous for them that they are not 
in a role. They are not prepared. They are not ready. They are not able to make contact with the nuclear and survive it. Diane? I was going to say, when, in psychology, we say when you go down, that means you go down into your psyche and it's dangerous. We have it not ringed. It, it, it's very, uh, you get very unsettled. And, and I think when you say you go down and we're near God, you get very confused and it's frightening mm-hmm. because you have to deal with your own shadows. Right. And that is certainly, I mean, it's certainly a terrifying, certainly a terrifying event. I mean, we get that all over rabbinic literature. This is a terrifying event um, for the people. Sheldon? Trivial, dumb question. No such thing. Who's blowing the horn? (laughs) Who's blowing the horn? See, we love a careful reading of the text, right? So um, we're not told, right? We're not told. Um, So then what would you suggest? Well, it's probably God in some fashion, but it's, it would be the first time the actual God actually takes an instrument and blows it. So it has to be something. All right, so that possibly it's, you know, amongst all these things that are happening that are a manifestation of the divine, perhaps a sound that's loud like a horn is part of all of that, right? Um, so if you think in the ancient world of the things that would have been the the biggest things you can think of to describe a huge event. You know, we are so inundated with, you know, big stuff that we get desensitized, right? But if you think about the biggest stuff there was, thunder, lightning, were huge events, particularly in the desert, right? You've got, when you've got storms like that, it's huge. Um, and uh, and this is a, just a second, David, um, this is a, Israel's built, Israel's built, Israel's on the Syro-African rift. So a lot of the buildings that have been destroyed in Israel, when you go to see um, ruins in Israel, a lot of cities were devastated not by war, but by earthquakes. Uh, when I was in Beersheba, living in Beersheba, um, in the dorms, I woke up because the, the blinds were smacking against the wall. And I was like, what in the world? Like, is it... And But, but the window was closed so it's like it can't be wind right and then I realized like I was feeling kind of seasick right and and then I realized the bed was slant you know know, starting to bump against the wall and we were having a we're having a major earthquake uh, in Beersheba right the whole you know the whole building is swaying so um, so it's very common and a lot of devastation has resulted in Israel from earthquakes so when they when they think of the biggest things that could be right terrifying in terms of and awesome too, not just terrifying, but awesome. Um, it is thunder, it is lightning, it is um, things shaking. Uh, and remember that these are people who dealt in, uh, who dealt with a lot of fire. Like they, they lived close to fire. That they lived around the fire. They cooked around the fire. They worked around the fire. So smoke is a big part of it. War certainly results in um, in devastating fire and smoke. So so it makes some sense that these are. These are the ways that, you know, that Torah talks about this being the biggest experience. You put all of, all of those things together and you've got like one of the biggest experiences our people can remember. David? Rabbi, couldn't you also look at this as God, the way he's saying go down and talk to people, as <coughs> God wanting to maintain and speak the, the, uh, this ineffable, uh, who is he? I mean, certainly we can predicate all kinds of motives to God, um, but several times in Torah we seem to see God caring for the people by saying, tell them not to touch this, tell them not to touch that, because it's supercharged by my presence. So when God is in Let's say the tabernacle, nobody can go into the Holy of Holies because it is supercharged and they will die. So now if you want to say the motive there is that, again, God doesn't want to be, quote unquote, seen. Okay, we can predicate that. It seems, though, because we get God saying it several times for a human being can't see me and live. Except for Moses or Aaron. Moses seems to see more than anyone else has, but not even Moses sees God. 
God says, I'm going to put my hand over you and I will pass before you and you will see my, my afterwards. God is calling Moses then to come into the fire pit. I mean, knowing God must assume that he can control the pit so Moses doesn't die. I'm not sure what the pit is. Well, the fire and the, the donut. Oh, coming up to the mountain. Right. right. Yeah. The Moshe can get closer than, than anybody else. Okay. Reuben? In this context, it's interesting that God refers to herself in the third person. Very nice. Very nice, Reuben. So let's pay attention to that as we get to the actual Aserat Tadibrot, because the rabbis go exactly there. They go, notice where God talks about God's self in the third person. Mm -hmm. I feel a little bit schizophrenic when I read this, just Mm because we're saying God does this, God does this, but people wrote this. So they're imagining what God did. So yes. Right. So what what I'll ask you to do is is hold all of our conversation here as if we were in a sacred literature class. So when I read Jane Eyre and talk about it in class, we say, you know, Jane says to right. You know, we don't mean we believe Jane existed and said something. What what we're saying is we're entering the story. And if we're really going to experience the story and talk about it, we talk from what's happening. Right. So. I'm not suggesting God said. I'm suggesting the the material we're looking at, right? If we're going to enter the story, God says the people do this. Moshe does that, right? Right. And it's and it's interesting. Like we don't have that problem with any other literature that we talk about, right? We have it with Torah, right? Because it's been translated as fundamentally every word actualized, you know, true fact, history, whatever. And so we have this kind of reaction, right? So so what you lift up is how how differently people understand this text. And I'm not going to suggest that there isn't some element of something happening here that still happens. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, I believe God still speaks from the mountain. God's still calling. Right and looking for relationship. Okay. Um, all right. So so this is so then we get to the end of uh, nineteen, and Moshe goes down to speak to the people to make sure everything is in place, that all of the safeguards are in place, because the moment is about to happen where there's going to be contact between the divine and the people. Right, and that is a huge moment. It's very dangerous. It's very loaded. It's very powerful. And Moshe's got to make sure everything is in place for this meeting to happen. And it's going to be the, the people experience physically. You know what they see, if you will, is the thunder, the lightning, the shaking, the smoke. Right. So that and they hear things. Um, but the the main encounter, and here's where Judaism is in some ways unique. Israelite religion is unique. The encounter is with all the people. This is critical. All the people are present. All the people experience the revelation. That is unique in the ancient world. This has never happened before in the religions of the ancient Near East. That everyone heard the most important meeting, the most important thing. Always it's been the prophet or it's been the king, right? Or it's been the priests who had soul, um, understanding, knowledge, experience of the ritual, the commandments, what you're supposed to do. The code of Hammurabi, we get, you know, that the, that the people are given the code, but it's the king in consultation with the gods who initiates the code. The people don't confront the gods. Yes? So even though it's a similar idea, um, this is unique in the ancient world. Yes? And it still is. We're the only people who have had a national revelation. 
everybody else, it's maybe one guy, and we all have to believe in one guy. But not us. Not us. Change with the Kohanim in later times, no? What did what change? Well, that there was people who were trained or through inheritance were the priests that, you know, liaison and did all those special things. I mean, I'm just wondering if that in any way... Um, every every ancient religion had priests. Every ancient religion of the of the Levant had priests. So that that's a given, that you're going to have priests. The question is, what's the role of the priests? In other religions in the neighborhood, and in the world, I would say, the, the priests were the only ones who knew the rituals and what had to happen. So the people needed them in order to know what it was they had to do to live in right relationship with the deity. In ancient Israel, the priests served on behalf of the people, and the people were commanded to know and to teach to their children what was supposed to be done to live in right relationship to the deity. Do you see the difference? The priests carried it out, but they were not the ones with the knowledge, right, and therefore not sharing that with the people. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I was just kind of thinking about, like, what people think about the Pope, for example, and um, if um, priests in the temple had, if, if, if that kind of process started happening later on, you know, not obviously not what's going on here, but in the temple, once the temple... Would All right, so one important thing to remember is later on, not here. Yeah. This is written later on. Oh, yeah. Well, that's so true. this is written by people who already had priests. Right, and some people would argue that's already done. That's already been destroyed when this is written. Okay, so um, I, I'll move on in a second. Um, but we're going to have this conversation when we get to Leviticus. I promise. Keep so you have to keep coming. Um, um, preview. Uh, but you know, part of it is about how do we understand the priesthood and what's different about when you talk about the Pope and Catholic priests. And I'll stop here, but we will talk about this a lot more. I promise. Um, the difference between Catholic priests and the ancient Israelite understanding of priests is that the ancient Israelite priests could do things on behalf of the people that no one else could do because God chose to put them in danger. If they screwed it up, they died. They took the risk of keeping everything like it had to go so nothing blew up. If it blew up, they blew up on, in their faces. So it was understood as a risk. Right? That, you know, they kind of got put in harm's way so the people didn't have to. The Catholic priesthood understands the priest as being able to make something happen that couldn't happen if it wasn't them doing it. So the blood, right? The wine turning into, actually turning into the blood of Christ only can be affected by a priest. Transubstantiation only happens because of the, you know, whatever you want to call it, zappage. the zappage, thank you, that's usually the word I use, of the priest. And that is not the idea of the priesthood in, in ancient Israelite religion. All right. I saw a hand over here. I was taught that not only were the, was the entire nation of Israel there for the revelation, but everybody in this room was there, including all of your children grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren, that everyone who affiliated as a Jewish soul was also there at the Revelation. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So um, there is another place where we uh, have um, the quote from Torah that I, I bind not only you who are standing here this day to this covenant, but those who are not here today. And that's in Deuteronomy. And that statement was translated by the rabbis to mean, what, what can it mean? It's not only binding on all of you here, but all of you who aren't here. Like, what could that possibly mean? And for the rabbis, they unpack that to mean all future generations of Jews. That it's binding, that the covenant's binding. Binding what we're there. Midrash, there's lots of different versions. There's not one standard edition, which is one of the things that makes us crazy and makes us wonderful as a people. There's lots of, right? There's lots of Midrashim. The one that has become most common, the one that we, most of us know, because we like it, um, is that 
every soul that would ever be Jewish was actually there at Sinai, right? So, um, and, and anyone who would ever, ch- and the rabbis go so far as to say anyone who would ever choose Judaism, anyone who would ever join the Jewish people was at Sinai already. Um, so it's a really inclusive way, right, of, of reading um, the text to say, you know, this, this mythic moment happened to all of us, which I, which I love. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, teaching. And there's, I think I've told this story before, but, you know, among elder people in um, Duluth, I would, you know, somebody would say something like, you know, you look really familiar to me. And they'd say, well, of course, I know you from Sinai. <laughs> right? So it's a lovely... <laughs> It's a lovely way of saying, doesn't matter if we've met, you know, in this life or did or did, you know, we we know each other from Sinai. Anything else? Linda? Yeah. 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 Isn't, wouldn't that, isn't that more scary to think you might die if you get too close as opposed to wanting to build a relationship? So d- define close. In, in presence. Ah, so is that what God seeks? Is the people to be close in presence? No, he wants the people to um, follow it. So in a way you've just answered your own question. I guess I did. <laughs> so... It's not that simple, of course. I'm going to complicate it now. But, but in some ways, like, what is close? What does relationship mean? It doesn't seem to mean physical proximity, right? Because what do we get? What is God about to say? Not, okay, here's how you can sit close to me, right? That's not, doesn't seem to be the focus. Not that, and I'm going to complicate that statement in a second. But it seems to be, here's what you, here's how you need to behave in order to be close to me. That, that's what relationship means for God. If you behave in certain ways, the way I want you to, to, then that brings you closer to me. Now, now that I've said that, I'm going to complicate it with, and right, there's the Mishkan, there's the tabernacle, like where God's presence is going to dwell because the people want God among the people. And God is the one with the idea, not the idea, but God's the one who says, let them make a Mishkan that I might dwell among them. So it does seem that God too wants physical proximity to the people, God's concentrated essence to be among the people. And the people want that, but are a little nervous about that with good reason, right? Because it's, it's dangerous. Um, just like here, we're going to see the people here too, or not real sure, right? About this. So the people, I'm just repeating this because people at home can't necessarily hear your question or your your insightful comment. Um, so Linda's saying that that the people must really need this to be willing to take the risks that seems to be associated with a relationship that that's this intense and therefore that dangerous. And I'm going to suggest every single thing we do that is of great import is dangerous. You know, when I went into a plan C-section, I knew I might not come out of it. I knew that, right? And so why do we do that? Why in the world would you go let them cut you open knowing you could bleed to death? Because Eliana Fay needed to come into this world, right? So I needed to be a mother. Why? I don't know. It's crazy what we do, that we have children. It's so crazy, right, that we're going to take on this incredible burden, that we're going to take on this incredible responsibility for a soul that, that we help put in a body like, and make sure it stays safe and make sure it gets educated and fed. Like, why do we do that? The, the, why do we fall in love and, like, give somebody that kind of access to our innermost selves and turn over power over our own happiness in certain ways. Like, why would anyone do that? It's dangerous, right? And any anything that's really at the core of what it means, I think, to go to meaning, is it's got its own other side, which is that it can hurt, it can destroy, it can frighten us. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We're called into 
confronting that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I didn't think that far ahead. I guess, but, um, job security. I'm just saying, job security. Of what you're saying, and maybe what this is also about, is that there are boundaries that that need to be, and that if you get too close, if you give up too much of yourself, then healthy relationships, whether it's a relationship with God or with other human beings, doesn't happen. Or, or it happens and you're destroyed. And you're destroyed. Right? If we give over too much of ourselves in relationship, we disappear on some level and that and I think you're exactly right, Paula. I think Torah is very clear. There have to be boundaries. That's what the priesthood is about. There have to be rules and boundaries because many traditions, the idea is, what is it? Um, how do you say union with the divine? Right? The idea is union, that your boundaries completely fall away and you become one you know, with the divine. And in some cultures that meant actually right, destroying one's actual self, but in a lot of times it's one's psyche, one's, one's own will, one's own desire. You know, you put that aside to become a monk that, you know, I no longer have needs and desires other than to be with the divine. And Judaism says it, nope, nope, and nope. That is not the goal. Not, we're not talking about anybody else. For us, the goal isn't to give oneself over entirely. There need to be boundaries. It's about a relationship. And without boundaries, there isn't relationship. There's just mushy oneness. Torah, is, that is just not, that's not Jewish. For us, it's about distinction. It's about differences. It's about coming together across a divide. Choosing that. Choosing to be in relationship and all that that entails and all that that risks and all that that means that you're not me and I'm not you. You're going to stay Rita. I'm going to stay Amy. And that's going to have a lot of complications. Right? I don't need you to be me. And I'm not going to try to be you. That's already complicated. That for us is the goal. That we stay with how complicated relationship is. As we stay other. As we stay unique. As we stay different. An interesting aspect. Because I, the fact that as a young the goal was to be completely selfless. Right. So it's a the internal uh, for some of the people <clears throat> was a very difficult thing to understand. Selfless, you become you. You have you have nothing left of yourself. Right. The goal is to become selfless. Right, and that is, yeah, and that is not that is not the goal, right? In in Judaism and in Jewish living and in Jewish tradition. So what what happens at this mountain? What is this encounter between the divine and this crazy people, this mixed multitude that just came out of <clears throat> slavery and oppression? This the dregs of Egyptian society have been taken out of Egypt and are now standing at the mountain. What is this encounter for us? Just like in the creation narrative, the creation happens with speech with words. So the creation of this relationship, the creation of the covenant is also going to happen through speech, through words. All right. bet resh. What does it mean? What's that shorash mean? What does that Hebrew root mean? <laughs> Listen to how many words just came out. Speak. If it's a verb. Word, if it's a noun. What else? Thing. Thing. Very important. So, this Hebrew shoresh, sorry, I know some of you don't read Hebrew. Or, because in Hebrew, this letter, this letter changes to be each other. Depending on the grammatical context, this is the same letter. So, did someone just say just like Spanish? Yes. Okay. So, 
depending grammatically where this word appears and how it appears is whether or not it takes a dagesh and becomes a bet or stays a vet. So it's either a buh or a vuh. So it doesn't matter. If you're buh vuh, it doesn't matter. Um, so whenever we get this duh, buh, ruh, or duh, vuh, ruh, we are talking about speaking in the verbal form. If it's a noun, it means, and usually it's a little confusing in Hebrew, but it makes sense to me in a way, it means both word and the thing the word is pointing to. So you have to know in context, is it talking about the word or the thing? Right? So in English, those are very different things. Um, there's the there's the word, which is an abstract, right? We're very Western. We're very based on Greek philosophy. Word means the abstract concept table. The word table is an abstract, right? Table as, as an idea. The, the, the table thing is, is a thing. It's actual, right? No distinction in Hebrew. They did not buy the material abstract split, right? We are very much inheritors of that split in the West because it was Greeks who came up with that split, right? Think Plato, Aristotle. There's a split between the abstract and the material. That is post this text, and we never bought it. We in the West bought it, but not not the tradition. So it stays much more complicated and rich in Hebrew that davar is both the word indicating the thing and the thing. Okay, so what we're getting in just a moment, this, this speech, the speaking that God is about to do, the words that God's about to speak, right? So in Hebrew, it's like God is wording, do you see how in Hebrew it all comes together more? We say speak in English, and words are what you speak. In Hebrew, God words to the people. And here are the words that God words to the people. Right? All right, so the words that God is going to word to the people are called devarim. The ten devarim is how they've come to be known. Aseret brought. Now, what is it pointing to? The ten speakings? The ten statements? Or the ten things? Yes. Items? The answer is yes. Sarah thought you brought. So next time you hear somebody say the ten commandments, you can go, well, not really. Not really. They're not... These are not the Ten Commandments. These are ten things. Ten utterances. Right? Because it's much more than ten words. <coughs> and how it gets divided. How these words get divided into ten individual things is not uniform even in the ancient Jewish world. It's not clear. So the Christians have a very different way of breaking out these words into 10 separate items. And even among the Jewish tradition, the scholars, going all the way back to Philo of Alexandra, there's different ways of, of pulling out which sentences go together to make 10 things. Okay? So we all think, oh, it's so clear. Right, but it's because we've chosen one representation of that. But that's not it's not uniform across centuries or across um thinkings or even across religions. All right. Does that arrangement that's different change the meanings of the commandments? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean the ones that are obvious that we're gonna get to, thou shalt not murder. Okay. That it's pretty clear. That's a thing, <laughs> right? So there's some where it's, it's not an issue, but it, it's at the very beginning and a little bit later where we'll say that it's a little like, which exactly is the commandment, right? Don't the things come up again in Deuteronomy? Yes. So are they the same things? Slightly different version. 
slightly in front. So that's one of the variances is already here. All right. So let's look at 20. God spoke all these words saying, I, Adonai, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is the heavens above or the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, your God, Adonai, am an impassioned God, visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not swear falsely by the name of your God, Adonai, for Adonai will not clear one who swears falsely by God's name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of your God, Adonai. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth and sea, and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Adonai blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your mother and father that you may long endure on the land and that your God, Adonai, is assigning to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Nor shall, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor male, nor female slave, nor ox, nor ass, not anything that is your neighbor's. All right. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the blare of the horn and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moses, and we will obey but let not God speak to us, lest we die. Moses answered the people, Be not afraid, for God has come only in order to test you, and in order that the fear of God may be ever with you, so that you do not go astray. So the people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So where exactly did that moment happen where the people flipped out and said, we can't handle it, right? So some want to say it happens right there. They hear the Ten Commandments and they freak out and they don't want to hear anymore. They're done. Um, And so Moshe, according to some rabbinic um, midrashim, goes to get the rest of Torah, right? And so the people are like, "We, we, we can't deal. But most of rabbinic tradition, and again, it's not right or wrong. This is the way it's it's come um, through the the generations. Most of rabbinic tradition holds um, that the people only hear the first utterance. And it goes to um, what Ruben said earlier, that it switches um, from third second person to third person. So go back to 20 verse 1. I am Adonai, your God, right? Speaking to the people who took y'all, because it's plural, right? Who took y'all out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Then it switches. Lo yelecha Elohim acherim alpanai. To the singular, right? You, you, each of you shall not have, right, any other God before you. Meaning you won't, you won't have a relationship with any other God, right? And then we get, um, again, in the, um, in the second person singular. The rabbis go back to verse two, say, because this is where it actually starts, because otherwise it's an introductory statement that God said, spoke to all the people saying, Anochi Adonai, I am Yudhe Vavhe, your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Is this one of the items? Is this a commandment? It's a statement. So tell me, Reuben, how, how does this, what does this call us into if we want to call it a commandment? How, if we're looking at Ten Commandments, would this be number one? Yeah. How, how? Tell me. Because there's nothing before it. Uh, so it so it can either be an introductory statement or one of the ten. We're talking about the beginning of it. Yes. I am indeed talking about the beginning. Yes. Yeah. So that is an introductory statement. <laughs> we have to know who, who's speaking to us. I mean, I'm the God, which, you know, who are you? I'm the God who brought you out of bondage. So it's kind of... Yeah, it's saying, here's who I am before it's he even starts. Let's say it's the both. Commandment. It's, it's a pitch. It's, 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 it's a pitch, Sarah says. It's an introduction. Yeah, because like, hi, I'm, I'm Rabbi Abby, and today we'll be teaching um, Exodus. All right, there's, there are some who say this is number one. I am yod heh vav your God. That's number one. You will take me as your God. That's number one. Not an introduction, not an introductory statement. They know who they're dealing with. They've been hanging out with this God for a while. There's been a bunch of plagues. There's been a bunch of schlepping through water. They know who they're dealing with. This is number one. I yud hey vav elohecha. I am your God. Baal can be theirs. Buddha can be theirs. Adonai elohecha. Number commandment number one, I will be your God, period. And because I brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's important to know that in um, treaties, when you have a covenant between a conquering king and a vassal king, and we know that all of these are based on that model, right? That was the common model in the ancient world. The radical move, the reconstruction that, Israel, ancient Israel does is who is the king with whom the covenant is being made? The king of kings. That is a radical new move in the ancient world. But the format is standard. Okay? So it's not the format that's the big wow, right? The big wow is the king is not a human king. So in those in those vassal treaties, the conquering king, right, always says, I am Queen Amy, who beat up your queen. Therefore, I am your queen. That is always the, that is always the first statement. What are my grounds for calling you into a covenantal relationship with me? Right? Cause, cause it means exclusive. You can't have another queen, only me. So in all of them, it starts with what are the grounds? And the grounds here are, I took you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And it's in the first person. Correct. The rabbis, there's a beautiful mystical tradition that says, when we look at the first word of Revelation, what is the first word? Anochi. What does Anochi mean? I. I. Me. The first letter is? What sound does an olive make? No sound. Olive doesn't make a sound. One has to give it a vowel for it to have a sound. The letter itself is not is not a consonant, right? It doesn't it doesn't it has to take a vowel in order to make a sound. And so the rabbis say the people only heard anochi. There's a tradition that says the people only heard anochi and that that was enough. They were done. I and that was it. They were done. They flipped out there and said, Moshe, you go deal with this. This is way, way above our pay grade, right? You go deal with this. I love the rabbinic tradition that says 
all the people heard was the olive. What the people heard was silence. That revelation happens in silence. And that is that is the beginning of revelation. I mean, that's one teaching, is that the beginning of revelation is silence. And the other is that that was, that was what the people heard, was the Aleph of Anochi. And that's all. This might be very irreverent, but I'm seeing the, the onset of Jewish guilt here. In what way? Um, well, look, I saved you, therefore you have to you know, devote yourselves to me. That's a guilt trip. <laughs> to talking about you know passing the guilt of the of the parents onto the children. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange concept. The idea of guilt. It's very strange to us. Yeah. It's very strange to us. Um, in the ancient world, and certainly in um, early Israelite religion, it was not an individual religion. It was a collective, right? So there is no individual. If you, as an individual, sin and start messing things up, you contaminate everything for everybody else. That is why you have capital punishment in Torah, because it will contaminate everything. So, um, so for them, I mean, for us, it's very strange, but for ancient Israel, what we do affects our children's ability to have a relationship. Um, that's, and it's a collective responsibility. And the point of that statement is not look out, it's going to be on your kids. It was understood that it was generational. It was understood. All y'all who are here and all of you who aren't here, it's, it's a collective and it's generationally forward. The point of that statement is to say, it's not to the thousandth generation that my wrath and my, right, will go only to the fourth. But if you live in right relationship to me, my kindness will go to the thousands generation. So it's more of a, a statement about where the focus is that to us sounds very strange. But it would not have sounded strange in the ancient world. Um, it, and going to guilt, guilt is not a bad thing. Not always. Not always. Shame is a bad thing. Shame is different. There's not shame here. There is, you have a responsibility. You're free. You have a responsibility to the source of your freedom. And that responsibility is to treat other people well. And if you don't, that's bad. Right? So, according to this, and I would say even according to some of my own understandings about covenantal relationship, guilt is not a bad thing. On Yom Kippur, we spend a lot of time saying what we've done wrong because that is the only way we can move forward into doing it differently. And if we don't feel badly for having done it wrong, why would we change? Well, it's the definition of guilt. Right. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is the part of guilt that paralyzes is not good, but that's not here. We have a, we have an obligation to the source of life, says our tradition. You know, you don't have to buy that. You can say that's a bad thing. You can say obligation is already a problem. That's fine. But that's who we are. Right? Those of us who feel bound by some kind of godliness, the, the call to be godly, and that that is not just optional, that is a foundational obligation of being moral, ethical, thinking human beings. We do feel an obligation. It's not just when I feel like it, right? I'm never supposed to speak terribly to somebody else. doesn't mean I don't do it. But there is an obligation to, to treat people better than that. Right, right. And now where people go with shame, you know, or internalizing guilt, that's a whole nother, that is a, a great conversation. Sarah? You can bypass guilt and go to gratitude that is being as you speak about responsibility, don't forget that you are here because I brought you out of Egypt. I mean, that's like recognizing to whom you owe gratitude. And gratitude makes you happy. Yes. Yes. 
According to age-old wisdom and recent research, um, <coughs> gratitude makes one happy, right? Don't, don't take for granted that you are not slaves. Remember, this is not written by slaves. This is written by people way later. Don't take for granted that you are not enslaved. I try hard not to take for granted that as a female, I am not living in many parts of this world right now. And that is not because I earned it. And it's not because I deserve it. And it's not because I did it. I am blessed to have been born in America. Right? I am very blessed. Don't ever take that for granted. And because you know that freedom, you have obligations to work for the freedom of other people. Yes? Uh, I think also just on a purely human level, if somebody saves your life, they're, they're your friend for life. And um, so um, I think that um, the beginning is important because it's like, why should I listen to you? Because I saved your life. And, you know. Right. Why, why should we, why should we give godliness a big place in our lives? Because it can save our lives. I mean, it does save our lives. But it makes us civilized. Yes. Is shame internalization a guilt? Ha 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 ha. Very, very interesting question. So there's a wonderful book if you want to, if you like this topic, which I do. I really like this topic. I think it's very important as a topic, so I don't mean to give it short shrift. Brene Brown is, um, a writer and um, scholar who has spent a lot of time dealing with the issue of shame. And she's fabulous. You can watch her TED Talk to 20-minute talk. Gorgeous. Brene, like Renee starting with a B, Brene Brown. And she has a book called Dancing at the Shame Prom. Um, and she has a very interesting discussion about the difference between guilt and shame. And essentially, guilt is what motivates us to be better people. Um, and guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is a judgment. I should have done X and I did Y. I feel guilty that I don't visit my mother in the nursing home more. That's not a feeling. That's a judgment. I, sh- I should go see her, but I choose or I, f- I feel too overwhelmed to go. So I don't go. Guilt is a judgment. Um, we can make choices if we're looking at things as judgments. Then we can make a choice. Okay, do I want to go? Do I, mean, do I need to change that? Shame is when we turn that inward to say, I don't go see my mother as much as I think I should, and therefore I'm a bad person. I'm, a, I'm selfish. I'm self-obsessed. I'm self-absorbed. I don't love her. I'm not a good daughter. All of that is shame. Who I am, right? So one is about what I do, the other is about who I am. And that that is a very important distinction that I have seen work beautiful things in people's lives when we sit together and they say, I feel guilty. <laughs> then I start down this, this whole speech gently and respectfully and lovingly. <laughs> Guilt's not a feeling, right? So, and then we have this conversation and it's amazing to see you can watch the weight lift from people when they start to separate out judgment and shame. And the wicked stepsister is humiliation. And the wicked stepsister is humiliation. Say more. Because humiliation is really what one person does to another person in order to try and, in essence, shame them. And humiliation is a they call it habanat panim, the whitening of the face. That when you embarrass someone in public, the blood just drains from their face and they go white. The rabbis call this halbanat panim, the whitening of someone's face, they say is murder. I've heard the argument that um, in a uh, relationship between two people, that actually humiliation causes more damage than the act of the adultery. Interesting. People can get over if there was a Physical lack of fidelity, but you let the world know and you humiliate your spouse, it's over. Right. Better things from the movie, that's why you saw get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anybody saw that. I don't know if everybody 
so I've, I've given you a handout that is uh, from Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who you've heard me quote a lot. Um, often we look at the Ten Commandments and go, okay, yeah, those are the fundamentals of human society, but really what does it have to do with me? I don't steal, right? I don't covet my neighbor's wife. I don't, you know, like, what, what is this really? I don't murder anybody, duh. Right? A lot of these really don't have very much to do with me. So um, what I love is this book um, by Rabbi Rami Shapiro called Minion, Ten Principles for Living a Life of Integrity. Um, and it takes kind of, you know, this idea of the ten and puts it in language that's a little bit more accessible for us. For some people, it's a turnoff because it's too new agey or whatever. That's fine. Um, but I love this book. I love the the work of taking these things and pulling them spiritually into being meaningful for our time. And I think Rami's one of the geniuses at doing that of our uh, generation. Um, many folks have chosen to do study groups around this book because um, it's incredible conversation. So I've given you um, the distilled uh, 10 principles is what he chooses to call Devarim, right? So let's look at number one. We'll just go quickly through, but I just want to show you. Um, and sit with these at home for a while and see... See what you think. Number one, Yudhe Vafe. Anochi Yudhe Vafe. I am Yudhe Vafe. That's number one for Rami, right? That's not an introductory statement, right? The unnamed and unnameable reality, capital R, is God. The source and substance of all being and becoming. That's the principle number one. Unnamed, unnameable. Reality, capital R, is God. Number two. Yudhevavhei cannot be imagined and must not be imaged. Right? I vow, and so he, he has commitments that come out of each one of these. And for him, the, the commitment that comes out of number two I vow to practice meditation. We could put in there prayer, song, dance, whatever, as a means of emptying the mind of thought and image and thereby awakening God. So what is he saying? You know, one of the things he's saying is God can't be imaged means we worship images all the time. That's where we spend our time and energy and attention is on images. The image of me having that conversation and this time I said something really smart in response. Right? That's we're, that's where we're obsessed. That's where we spend our time. That's where we focus. That's where we spend our energy. Or I knew I shouldn't have taken that left turn, right? And we, we go on forever and then I wouldn't have the accident and we relive the left turn over and over and over and over and over, right? That God can't be imaged means get the images out. That is the way we come close to Yudhevavhe. Number three, do not misuse religion or spirituality by taking God in vain. And he says, aware of the suffering caused by the misuse of God and religion and the quest of power, I vow never to mistake my path as the path. What if everybody did that, <laughs> right? Um, but not taking God's name in vain for him means I won't use God's name, you know, my version of what I believe is going on with that, um, to be the only one or the best one or what it means you have to do. And so his, you know, his commitment out of that, I dedicate myself to humility in matters of the spirit, recognizing that at best, I glimpse but an infinitesimal slice of the infinite whole. Even when I get it, even when I'm right on, I'm seeing an infinitesimal slice of the unknowable whole. So somebody sitting across from me who's got, who doesn't get it because they're not saying what I'm saying, right, is seeing a different slice of the unknowable whole, possibly. Number four, remember Shabbat, right? And set it apart. So we have to cultivate a time for attention, renewal, reflection, and recreation, recreation. Yeah? Mm -hmm. 
All right. So that we promise to cultivate Shabbats and look at seven-year cycles and maybe taking a break from regular ways we do things every seven years and giving ourselves a way to recreate. Number five, honor your father and mother. Aware of the suffering caused by old age, illness, and death, I vow to care for my parents to the best of my ability. The best of my ability in any given week, in any given moment. The best of my ability. It doesn't mean X. It doesn't mean Y. It doesn't mean what this one tells you it needs to look like or that one needs to tell tells you what it needs to look like. The best I can do right now is what's called from me. And notice it doesn't say I will love my parents. Yeah. Notice it doesn't say I will like my parents. Notice it doesn't say I'll forgive my parents. All right. And furthermore, I vow to promote the well-being of all elderly people, doing what I can to honor and respect both aging and the aged. Really important for our society, right? That denigrates so often our, our elders. Do not murder. Aware of the suffering caused by the needless and wanton destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and justice and learn ways to protect the well-being of people, animals, plants, and minerals. What if we understood not killing <coughs> as beyond murder? What if we really understood, right, how much destruction we wreak in this world? And even if you want to stay at murder, at one po- at what point does us living the way we live, knowing the impact, knowing that I buy minerals that people are killed for in Africa, diamonds that children work themselves to death, you know, to my, at what point am I contributing to the, to the killing of other people? And by the way, um, traditionally, I just want to go back to the, the Torah text for a minute. It is not, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder. Right? So um, this is not saying that there aren't circumstances under which, and I think even Rami would agree, there are circumstances under which one is mandated to be willing to do what it takes. If someone came into this building to harm our children, no question, what need, no question, right, that I would be ready to kill. No question. And that is what's called for by Torah and by our tradition, is self-defense, is is mandated as is I you know and I'm sure it's somewhere you know those in our care mm-hmm. is mandated that we protect them at all costs number seven <laughs> to Rick's point do not engage in sexual misconduct right so Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I vow to cultivate sexual responsibility and not to engage in sexual relations without compassion and commitment. It doesn't say marriage, right? Notice, right? It's about what kind of commitment you have. And it and doesn't even say what that is, right? Um, and I love this. I vow to hallow pleasure, and the senses by seeing the wonder of life within and around me. So for Rami, what he's saying is, A, not to misuse our sexuality, of course, but he's going to take it further, right? And say, that means pleasure is sanctified, right? It's part of this whole business of what is okay and what's not okay. It includes pleasure. Well, then it must be something special. So that means, right, cultivate it. It doesn't say don't. Here's what just what you don't do. It means also it's something to be respected and honored and cultivated in our lives. Um, and it's pleasure of all kinds. Um, eight, do not steal. And he's going to, of course, call that exploitation, social injustice, theft, and oppression. I vow to practice acts of loving kindness towards all things. And I would say um, cultivating also um, awareness about how it is we need to change what we do um, so that we are not oppressing others. Um, do not lie. Aware of the suffering caused by wrongful speech and shallow listening, I vow to cultivate compassionate speech and attentive listening. 
I vow not to criticize or condemn things of which I'm not sure and cultivate an open mind. Am, am I ready to say that? <laughs> right? I mean, part of it is like, put these on the wall and ask yourself. I mean, <laughs> if I get honest about some of these, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable. <laughs> right? Um, I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain. Hmm. Number 10, do not covet. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I vow to cultivate ethical eating, drinking, and consuming to promote both personal and planetary well-being. Um, and here on the west side of L.A., I vow to honor the different gifts of people and to respect the property of others, seeing in another's success inspirational lessons for my own efforts rather than where we often go. How come I don't have that house? How come I don't have that pool or that car or that ring? This is often where we go. And it's okay that we go there. This is not saying, Torah is not saying you are bad or wrong or horrible for going there. It says you must not act on that. And Rami's saying he's going to change the language a little bit to make it more applicable to our time to say... You will cultivate the opposite that will allow you to keep these boundaries in a healthy place. So I'll ask you to sit with it and just see what it brings up for you, what are some of the core principles that you're ready uh, to, to take on living into in order to um, contribute to this world being one of more equity and justice uh, and compassion. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.